Breakthrough is a word which has been bouncing around in my head for a few weeks now. Having said that, I'm not entirely sure all of that which the Lord might be saying to me and to us through that word. Last week, I had a dream. I had a dream about preaching on this theme, breakthrough. Now, you might dream about all sorts of other things, sunbathing in the Caribbean, scoring that winning goal for the Blues against Villa in the FA Cup final, or maybe Villa against Blues, or Baggies against Wolves, or winning X Factor, or Love Island, <laughs> or the lottery. But for me, my dream was all about speaking to you on a Sunday morning. I think I should get double time for that. <laughs> and as I remember it, it was a very, very frustrating dream. I was incredibly restless that night. I twisted and turned all through my sleep. Uh, and I was preaching on this series entitled Breakthrough. But as I delivered my talk to you on a Sunday morning, I couldn't remember the word, breakthrough. And every time I struggled to remember this word breakthrough, it was replaced in my dream with another word, and the word was brokenness. And then last Sunday, Dan made a bit more sense of my dream when he gave that excellent talk on brokenness as a means to spiritual breakthrough. And the way that God brings a spiritual breakthrough in our lives is often through a place of brokenness. And Dan spoke about the prophet Elijah being uh, brought to a place of brokenness in his life before God. It was a place where he was no longer de dependent upon himself and when he trust needed to trust God like he had never trusted God before. And it was in that place that he heard God's voice. And this morning I want to continue on that theme. And I want us this morning to focus our thoughts on Mark chapter 5 verse 21 through to 42. It's a well-known passage. If you've got your Bibles there, then please use them. Otherwise, I'll, I'll put the words up on screen for you. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see, the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembled with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. 
While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and, and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kahum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Two stories in one, the story of Jairus's daughter and the story of the woman in the crowd. They dovetail so beautifully together. These stories are quite different and yet there is a common theme. The one thing that they had in common was both Jairus and this woman in the crowd were seeking God for a spiritual breakthrough. So let us just walk for our time this morning through this story. Let's see what lessons we can learn together. Firstly, Jairus, he was a synagogue ruler. He came to Jesus and we're told that he fell at Jesus' feet, pleaded earnestly with Jesus. My little daughter is dying. Please come and place your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now Jairus was a, a respected public figure. He was a leader of a synagogue which meant that he had responsibility for administrative affairs and also spiritual affairs within that synagogue. He was a man of great standing in his community. Yet, despite his prominence and status, Jairus didn't stand on ceremony. He desperately fell at Jesus' feet. He pleaded earnestly with him to come and lay hands on his daughter who was dying so that she would be healed and live. We could say that Jairus was looking for a breakthrough, for God to step in, for God to change everything. So what do we notice here with Jairus? This is incredibly simple, by the way, ridiculously simple, but he did four things. The first thing that we read is that he came into the presence of Jesus. Now, Jesus, whilst walking on planet Earth, was God incarnate, God in the flesh. But Jesus is no longer walking on Earth in a physical body. But not all is lost, because he has given us the Holy Spirit, his spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence in our world today and in our lives. And whilst I believe that God, the Holy Spirit, is omnipresent, that he is everywhere present, I also believe in the manifest presence of God. What do I mean by that? I mean those times, those places, those seasons where God is tangibly in the midst, where the atmosphere just seems to be permeated by the Spirit of God. You know, we sing that song, don't we? This is the air I breathe your holy presence living in me, I am desperate for you. I am lost without you. 
And there are often times when we as believers, we come together. We come together for the purpose of worshipping God. The scriptures are opened. Our hearts are encouraged. Prophetic words are given. We have the opportunity to pray for one another. God is doing stuff. And very often I have no idea what God is doing. But he's up to something. You see, if we desire to see spiritual breakthrough in our lives, it is so, so, so important that as the writer of the Hebrews says, that we do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, that we come together so that we can bask in the presence of Jesus. I told you this was simple. Secondly, Jairus fell at Jesus' feet. He didn't care what others thought of him. He, he didn't care that he was undignified in doing so, but he was desperate. And sometimes Christians, I believe, that we can be more concerned with those around us than we are concerned about Jesus and what he views in us. Can I ask you, how often have you not prayed out when we have gathered together? How often have you not shared that word of prophecy simply because you thought that your words will get all tangled up or come out the wrong way or you would do the wrong thing? How many times have you chosen not to ask one of the prayer team to pray for you? Just in case someone else sees you being prayed for and wonder what's going on in your life. Jairus didn't care. It didn't matter if the whole world saw him falling on his feet in this undignified way, even though he was a community leader. He was passionate, he was fervent for God. The third thing that we see is that he pleaded earnestly with Jesus. It was a matter of life or death. He was passionate, he was fervent, he was earnest. James tells us that Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Hey, maybe we should have tried that this week. <laughs> Fourthly, he had confidence in the goodness and the power of Jesus. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. What great faith. It was great faith, but it wasn't perfect faith. His faith didn't match the kind of faith that the centurion had when he came to Jesus for his servant to be healed. And this centurion said to Jesus, just say the word. I don't deserve you to come under my roof. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I tell this one, come, and he comes. And I tell this one to do this, and he does it. And Luke tells us that Jesus was amazed by this guy. And he had found such faith not even in Israel. Jairus actually needed Jesus to come physically to his home. And his faith might not have been of the caliber of the centurion, but it isn't about quality or quantity of our faith. As Tim said in his prayer just a few moments ago, the most important thing is the object of our faith, that our faith is in God the Father. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is in the Holy Spirit, in his power in this world and in our lives. And my guess is, and it's only a guess, that many of us feel, there are times that we feel, 
Our faith is a little bit deficient. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I guess, I say it's only a guess, that we have been at that place where we perhaps struggle over our doubts. We feel a little bit second class. We feel our faith is a bit inferior when we look at other people, a bit substandard. But see, our faith isn't in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. Yeah? If my faith was in my faith, then I would have reason to worry. But my faith is not. I know myself, I'm a bit fickle on times. But my faith is not in my faith. My faith is in the object. And the object is Jesus. Jesus says, if you have faith, meaning if you have faith in God, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move. Nothing will be impossible for you, says Jesus. What mountains this morning do you have in your lives that you want to come to Jesus? Come to Jesus and say, Lord, sort this out. Lord, enough is enough. Lord, just move this mountain, I pray. As Jesus went with Jairus, uh, uh, we, we read that a large crowd pressed around him. Luke says, actually, in his uh, version of this same story, that the crowds almost crushed him. And in this crowd was a woman. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Um, it was far more than just an inconvenience to her. She was desperate to be healed. Um, not only did she need to cope with her own physical condition, but, and, that, and that was bad enough, but according to Jewish law, this condition made her ceremonially and socially unclean. In other words, she wasn't allowed to take part in any aspect of Israel's worship. Anyone she would touch would also become socially and ceremonially unclean. This was an incredibly cruel condition. She couldn't live at home. She was ostracized from the community. She couldn't even meet up with friends. And Mark tells us that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She was desperate. She was absolutely desperate. She had tried everything. Now, given that this woman shouldn't be in close proximity to anyone, let alone being in the middle of the crowd, she thought it best to be discreet. And she said to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. That was her plan. And then Mark goes on to tell us, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? You see, according to the thinking of the day, when this unclean woman touched Jesus, Jesus would also be made unclean. But that isn't how it worked. Jesus wasn't made unclean by her. She was actually made whole by him. Yeah? I have met so many people over the years who have said to me, I couldn't come to church. It's not for people like me. It's for respectable people. It's for good people. If I came to the church, one guy actually said to this, if I came to the church, the walls would fall down. You see, Jesus is not made unclean through us, but thank God. 
we are made clean through him. And in that moment, both this woman knew that something had happened to her and Jesus knew that something had happened. Jesus realized that healing power had gone from him. Who touched my clothes? I could just imagine there being with the disciples and the bemused look that they must have had on their faces when Jesus asked that, who touched me? What do you mean, Jesus, who touched you? Who touched your clothes? Everyone is touching you, Jesus. What are you on about? But you see, what the disciples didn't realize, and this is so important, just catch this. There is more than one way of touching Jesus. There is more than one way of touching Jesus. The people in the crowd were touching Jesus. But this woman in the crowd was touching Jesus in an altogether different way. The crowd had casual contact. But this woman came up to Jesus and she touched him in faith. Do you know what? Jesus knows the difference. There are two sorts of people. There are two sorts of people today in this gathering, in this crowd. There are those who will casually bump into Jesus. And there are others of you who will desperately in faith reach out and touch him. Desiring to see that spiritual breakthrough in your lives. You see, we can rub shoulders with Jesus Sunday by Sunday as we sing our worship songs, as we share communion. But it's not the same as earnestly, sincerely, in a determined way, reaching out as that woman did to touch the hem of his garment. The crowd pressed around him, but the woman touched him. And there lies the difference. When Jesus inquired, the, the woman came forward. She fell at Jesus' feet. It was me. And that was a hard thing to do because, you know, that was so embarrassing for her. And I've been thinking about this the last, uh, last two or three days. Why did Jesus call her out? Why did Jesus call her out? Why did Jesus need to know who touched him? Wasn't it good enough for him to have that knowledge that she had been healed? Why did she need to get called out in that particular way? Well, I believe that there are two reasons for that. First of all, so that she would know that she was healed. Well, Mark tells us she felt in her body that she is freed from her suffering. Yes, I get that. But she, being human, was like every other human being here. There would have come a time when she probably began to doubt her healing. Was it true? Was that just a figment of my imagination when I touched Jesus and I felt so much better? Was it wishful think thinking? Was I really healed there? And she might even live in fear that that condition which she suffered from, from tw for 12 years would actually return to her. That's why Jesus needed to do what he did. It was an act of kindness on his part. So he confirmed that she was healed. But even more than that, Jesus wanted others to know that she had been healed and that her faith had made her well. You see, this woman had been excluded from social contact for 12 years. But now this was her big moment. This was her moment of reintegration integration into society. This was the moment where she was being restored. And he calls her daughter. 
Don't you love that? Daughter. That's the only time that we read in the scriptures of Jesus calling anyone daughter. It was just on this occasion. This woman had been despised. She was discarded. She was derided. She was disliked. She was even detested. And Jesus calls her daughter. Hey, her day was getting better and better. When all this was going on, poor old Jairus was there with his daughter at home, her life slipping away. Every second wasted in talking to this blessed woman was placing his daughter's life in greater jeopardy. And then the very thing that he feared, a message from home was delivered, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. Can you imagine the reaction? What would you have been in reaction if you had been in his shoes at that time? What must he have felt? Jesus, why did you have to stay that long in the crowd speaking to that stupid woman? Why? You were actually on your way to my house. But now all hope is extinguished. Reminds me a lot of the story of Lazarus. When Jesus was told that his friend Lazarus was ill, instead of rushing quickly to Lazarus's side, John tells us in John 11 verse 6 that Jesus stayed where he was two more days. That's a fascinating detail. After two days, Jesus and his disciples then decided to go down to Bethany where Lazarus lived which was about one journey away, one day's journey away. And by the time they got there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Do the maths. Lazarus, I believe, had just died after the messengers had been sent to Jesus. It took them one day to get to Jesus. Jesus waited two days, so that's three days. Then Jesus and his disciples decided to go down to Bethany, that's four days. So it appears that the moment that the disciple, the, the messengers were sent, that Lazarus had, had died. Now, I know that confession is good for the soul, so I'm going to confess something to you. Get ready for this. Oh, dear me, I've walked up the back row. I often get frustrated with God, especially on those occasions when I'm in a hurry, and he's not. Do you ever suffer with that frustration as well? Yeah. I want an answer now. I don't want an answer tomorrow, or next week, or next month, or next year. But I have learned, and I am learning, that divine delay is not denial. Divine delay is not denial. And when Jesus got to Bethany, the first words of both Martha and Mary, who were Lazarus' sisters, said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They both separately said that to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What were they actually saying? Well, I think, first of all, they were showing great faith in Jesus. They are saying that Jesus could have prevented their brother Lazarus from dying. That was a huge statement to make. 
they were attributing to Jesus a power that ordinary people didn't have. That Jesus could have prevented death. But also, in their words, I detect a whinge. There's a bit of a, a, a complaint going on here. A slight rebuke. What they were saying is, Jesus, if he'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He'd be still alive. Where were you, Jesus? We sent a special message to you. We thought you loved us. We thought you were our friend. Couldn't you have just said the word like you did with that centurion, Jesus, and Lazarus would have been well? I don't know if you've uh, ever seen those documentaries with police helicopters and the, the helicopters in the sky shining its uh, lights on some getaway car. And even at night, uh, a person might leave the car and run through fields or through housing estates or whatever. But because the helicopter has special infrared uh, cameras which detect body heat, there's no escape. Policemen on the ground would never be able to find that cr criminal, but they can only see at ground level. The helicopter sees on a different plane. And I would say that God is just like that. He doesn't think as we think. He doesn't uh, look at situations as we would look at them. He sees them differently. He can see them from a totally different plane. And there's a wonderful verse, you know it, in Romans 8, that God works all things, what? Together for good. Now, Jesus wasn't going to be dissuaded from uh, visiting Jairus' daughter. Jesus got to his home. He was confronted by wailing. In those days, it was customary to have uh, professional mourners to um, add to the atmosphere of grief in the house. And uh, it was a custom, even if you were a very, very poor person, the, the minimum requirement was two flute players and one mourner. So somebody like uh, Jairus, who was a high-ranked public figure, would have been expected to have a large number of professional mourners. Professional mourners. Can you imagine the job interview for that? <laughs> uh, thank you for your application, madam. Uh, would you like to give us a sample of your mourning technique? <laughs> but when Jesus declared that the girl wasn't dead but asleep, these mourners changed from weeping to ridicule, and he removed a lot of them. Taking just five people with him, who were the five? Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and Mrs. Jairus. Why did he take them? He took them because they all had faith for a breakthrough. Yeah, they all had faith for a breakthrough. He took the little girl by the hand and in Aramaic, which was his language, said, Talitha Kahum, little girl, get up, and she did. Both Jairus, the woman in the crowd, were broken people. There were two broken people, but they received a spiritual breakthrough. It was uh, C.S. Lewis who once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Incredible, incredible, incredible statement that. And for any of you that know anything about C.S. Lewis's life, um, he, he tasted a lot of pain. His mother died at an early age. His father emotionally abandoned him. He suffered from respiratory illness as a child. He fought and was wounded in World War I. And finally, he had to bury his dearly loved wife. God shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
world. Those words weren't just theory to him. Daniel Ritchie was born without arms. He wrote an article which I read recently. This is what he says. I stepped into suffering at birth. My physical body is a billboard for my pain. This has brought mocking, cruel jokes, stares, and the constant feeling that I am not like anyone else I meet. I have never been able to hide. Many people can bury their pain, but my heartache is written all over my two empty sleeves. Those sleeves tell a story without my mouth ever saying a word. My pain is almost swallowed, has almost swallowed me up, but Christ showed me how much greater he was than my empty sleeves. I am thankful for my pain. All the frustration that has come with it has reaped a bounty that I never could have produced on my own. God stepped in and carried me along in my weakness, letting me taste his strength, grace, and love in new ways. It is in our pain that God has us taste his power most intimately. It was in my brokenness that I saw God's true strength as he carried me along. God used my hurt so that he could clearly write the lessons of his grace on my heart and set my affections on him. Wow. Particularly, I saw that line in his writings. It says, it was in my brokenness that I saw God's true strength as he carried me along. God most definitely shouted to Jairus and to this unnamed woman and to C.S. Lewis and also to Daniel Ritchie in their pain and brokenness. And it is often through our pain and our struggles and our trials and our brokenness in life that God breaks through in ways that so often surprise us. Our pain can be God's megaphone to us personally, but it can also be a megaphone to the watching world. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the world gravitates towards a cancer patient who has hope and peace. The world gravitates towards that person. Onlookers are deeply touched over the way a parent might cling to their faith in Father God as they bury their own child. Work colleagues are often fascinated when we respond with love and kindness and forgiveness to people who have hurt us. Our pain serves as a platform for God to speak into the lives of others too. Brokenness is a means to spiritual breakthrough. In a few moments, we're going to be sharing communion together. And as we share communion together, we are reminding ourselves that we serve a God who is for us. One who did not spare his own son, but who gave him up for us all. And if you're ever in doubt of God's commitment to you, then I want you to think about the events on Good Friday. The injustice, the mockery, the ridicule, the shame, the crucifixion, the whipping. Think of the Last Supper, the night before, when Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. And then he took the wine and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
You see, his brokenness was a means to our spiritual breakthrough. His brokenness was a means to our spiritual breakthrough. Calvary covers it all. My sin and shame don't count anymore. Or praise to the one who has ransomed my soul. Calvary covers it all. His brokenness brought the greatest breakthrough of all. And as we share in the Lord's Supper, let us take these special moments to come into his presence, to once again fall at his feet in submission and praise, to pour out our hearts, to once again come before him and entrust our lives to him. Remember this morning as well as we share communion together that there are two ways in which we can touch Jesus. We can have a casual encounter, much in the way that the crowd rubbed shoulders with Jesus, or we can this morning come to Jesus in a way that that woman did, with a desire to be changed in faith as she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. This morning, if you would like someone to pray with you, some of the leaders are around, some of the ministry team are around, we would consider it a privilege to, to pray for you. Some of you here this morning, I believe that God will give you a breakthrough in changing your circumstances. But for some others, I believe that your spiritual breakthrough will come in your present circumstances, not separate from them. That God is doing a greater work in you through these times of trials and hardship. Didn't Paul write in Romans chapter 5 that we know that suffering produces perseverance? Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. For some of us, things are hard. Things are really tough at the moment. You can't understand why it has to be this way. But it's very often in the darkest nights that the light of Christ shines best. And in the storm, the Lord would reveal to you more of himself than he can in days of tranquility.